to a new edition of Lateral Conversations, my more or less weekly podcast. My name is Thomas Mark. My very special guest today is Professor Ellen Coombs. Ellen is an author, a systems theorist at the California Institute of Integral Studies, um, where he's also the director of the Co Center of Consciousness Studies. He's a consciousness researcher and a neuropsychologist. And we, we had a very fascinating and interesting conversation about lots and lots of things, consciousness and states and attractors and systems theory and drugs and life after death. And, and I'm very happy to be able to share this conversation with you. This will be part one of um, our conversation. I hope to publish part two maybe by mid or end July. So I, I hope you will tune in then as well. I hope you are all well and um, having a good time. Um, enjoy this podcast, this episode and well, take care. So, Ellen, thank you very much um, that, that you're coming to this podcast. I think it's 10 o'clock in San Francisco now. It is, almost. It's almost 10, yes. And it's a Sunday, so I really appreciate that you're doing this. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I wanted to talk uh, to you since I actually started to do this podcast because you, you are one of those preeminent figures with the consciousness research and, and um, I, I published a book of you in, in, in Germany, yeah. this, this Consciousness Explained Better, so, which mm -hmm. is a fascinating book. So, and, and finally, uh, I have you on Skype. So, you, you are a professor of consciousness research at, at the CIIS, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So, so and for, for how long actually um, are, you, are you researching consciousness? And Well, I've been interested in consciousness <clears throat> for many years. And my previous job uh, at the University of North Carolina, uh, I used to teach a course in consciousness uh, at the master's level uh, that actually won a, a national award in the U.S., Uh, it's a very popular course. Uh, so I've been interested in doing this to some degree for a long time, although I've been uh, at CIIS for about 10 years. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably for the last <clears throat> seven or eight of those, I've been a professor of consciousness studies. Okay. But the CIIS, that's a, that's a very old institution. I, I think Terence McKenna was there and, and even Aldous Huxley, is that correct? Uh, probably. Uh, I don't know for sure. But <laughs> it, you know, it started out in the 50s, oh. 1954. Uh, Michael Murphy and uh, one of the professors from Stanford had gone to Oroville, met Sri Aurobindo and the mother, came back very interested in spiritual work and spiritual growth. Yes. Uh, they got together with Alan Watts, uh, who was quite a popular uh, writer, especially about, the, you know, he's practically the person who introduced uh, uh, Zen Buddhism to uh, the English uh, reading population, very yes. popular mm -hmm. books, people still read them. 
Uh, and they started meeting every Saturday night over a bottle of wine. <clears throat> and people would uh, come. And eventually, a lot of people came. And eventually, they said, well, we need to start a school. So they actually started the first uh, version of what later became uh, the CIIS, the California Institute of Integral Studies. It wasn't called CIS, and it was called uh, something like the Institute of Asian Studies or something. Uh, and after a number of years, it uh, became a, a graduate school, uh, and people communicated with Sri Aurobindo himself about who would be a good first president. Uh, and he recommended a young Indian scholar by the name of Cherry Das Chowdhury. Yes. Uh, you can find the whole history on the website for CIS. But Chowdhury uh, was a wonderful, integral, uh, Sri Aurobindo oriented uh, philosopher, scholar. Uh, and he came and he was the first president for quite a few years. And his wife, Benna, uh, became sort of the center of spiritual. Uh, activity in San Francisco, set up the uh, Cross-Cultural Institute. Uh, I'd have to check the exact name of that, but it's still active. They still uh, have speakers regularly. Uh, and in fact, during the 80s and 90s, when we had uh, such a flood of uh, gurus and spiritual teachers, from, especially from India, uh, they all arrived at the Institute first. Not, not the California Institute of Integral Studies, but this one that Ben has set up that's still still going on, uh, Cross-Cultural Institute or, or some such. Uh, so it became the hub. And Benna herself uh, became the hub of a lot of spiritual teaching. Almost every quote-unquote guru that came to the U.S. started in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, invited by her. Uh, and she really lived and was active till uh, maybe three years ago, two or three years ago, and the center is still there. So the roots of the California Institute of Integral Studies go way back to this Asian connection, the Aurobindo connection, and, and then the emphasis on integral education, integral learning. Uh, <clears throat> and it can still continues in that vein, although... Uh, it's probably fair to say nowadays CIS is, uh, uh, I think, more about social equality and um, uh, uh -huh, social okay. issues, although we still have pictures of Orobindo and the mother in every, practically every room in the building. Interesting. Uh, but interest there has changed. It went through a period when uh, there was a lot of Marxists there, and now it's become more uh, about social justice and diversity, although there's still uh, we still have conferences about uh, spiritual matters, and uh, quite a few of the faculty are, are still dedicated to that, yes. that thing, which is what brought me, actually, it's my, my interest. So that's so, but, maybe but, something you wanted to know. So yes, but your your specialty is consciousness research from a, yeah, from yeah. a systemic perspective, no? Yes, I'm a, what you would call a generalist. Uh, there aren't too many generalists in this area because most people interested in consciousness who are scholars or researchers are either philosophers of one ilk or another, one type or another, or they're uh, brain scientists, neuro, uh, neurophysiologists or whatever it is, or they're psychologists or they're psychiatrists or they're 
uh, anthropologists, or whatever, a lot of specialists. And uh, although my background is in psychology, <clears throat> and a lot of my training had to do with studying the brain, actually my degree way back was in uh, neuroscience. Okay, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the, the position I hold at CIIS and my, most of my activity professionally is as a, what I would call a generalist, somebody who can bring together people uh, with different interests uh, and connect them in conferences or just connect them as friends or especially for students, doctoral students, provide materials in different areas. So uh, I guess I'm one of the few generalists in the field. Uh, but in that yes, but your general approach is systemic. As far as I understand, so so you, yeah. you you come from this system theoretic school of thinking, Maturana, Varela. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I almost left that out. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. I have been a personal friend of uh, Irvin Laszlo uh, yes. from way back in the '80s, and uh, it's actually Laszlo that elevated me to a international position, I should say. Uh, because I've been to so many of his gatherings. Uh, just recently, one in Chicago that's a celebration of his life and work uh, by a foundation called the Greenheart Foundation. That's yes. quite interested. So, yeah, and through Irvin, I've met most of the major systems theorists like Majorama and uh, uh, Varela. Uh, you met the, them? What's that? You you met them personally, or uh, yeah, I did. Wow! Mm -hmm. Because I went to so many of these meetings. Uh, back in uh, in the nineties, Irvin was uh, for a time the president of the International Society of System Sciences, and they would uh, have meetings often in Vienna, uh, other places too, uh, almost always in Europe. Budapest is another one, and uh, Irvin because. I guess we like each other, and uh, I've done a lot of work with him and by him and for him as a, an editor. Uh, I would always get invited. I mean, get my way paid, in fact. So uh, I would, yeah, they were wonderful. I mean, the most recent trip was to Italy less than a year ago to the Laszlo Center. Irvin has gotten very interested in consciousness now, as you know. And he's, I guess, appropriate to his age, <clears throat> in the middle 80s now. He's very interested in issues about uh, continuation of life beyond the physical. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would have to go back and look on the web to find the whole program. But he, it was a, a, a three or four day conference uh, at the Lazo Center in, uh, in Italy. And uh, it uh, it had quite a few people who are well known in research about life after death. Oh, interesting. Yeah, in in, in fact, this guy Alexander, who has a bestseller out, who's a psychiatrist and uh, or a psychologist, or maybe he's a neurologist. I'm not sure, but he he had a very intense and long. Uh, near-death experience, and he's written a whole book about it. In fact, it's a bestseller in the U.S. He's probably made more money from that than being a physician. Uh, he came, gave a wonderful talk. Uh, 
Stuart uh, Hammeroff, who's you know runs the big Tucson consciousness conferences, and yes. he was there, uh, and quite a few other people that are not less well known. Pin Van Lommel, are you familiar with him? No, 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 I'm not. Okay, Pin Van Lommel is uh, from the Netherlands. He's a retired uh, heart surgeon. Uh, he actually was the director of a whole set of hospitals, heart surgery across these hospitals. Yes. He's collected more near-death experiences than anybody else alive, I think, and really analyzed them. He has a book in English. It's probably in several translations because he told me how many he had sold in the Netherlands alone. I said, good Lord, that must include every man, woman, and child in the country. Wow. Uh, so many issues. But it's called something like Life After Life. Uh, but Pen Van Lobel, P-E-N-V-A-N-L-O-N. Somehow it rings a bell, but I can't. Oh, yeah. No, it's the guy. So he was there. So Irvin's been interested in these issues of uh, no, because, no, because the the uh, one step back, the the constructivist perspective and and the model from Varela and Maturana, it's one of my um, tenets of my own life philosophy, and and influ oh, it, oh. it influenced me deeply, you know, and because you know that was that that idea that the brain and the nervous system is creating its own states, and then came along that. Right. The, the the German sociologist Nicholas Luhmann who took that theory to the cultural realm and to the social right. realm and, right. and then and then I discovered you actually um, because Luhmann just wrote a little bit about the the evolution of consciousness from from a, from that autopoetic um, point of view but you right. you had a you had a complete model about this and this is quite interesting it goes like in, in the direction of Piaget a little bit but it's like how how the yeah. psyche and the, the the consciousness is yeah booting itself up and it's creating its own realities in a way yeah that's a real interest of mine you're exactly right and uh, autopoiesis is it's called is a very central idea that all, all the theoretical work I've done aside from being a generalist uh, and organizing things and getting people connected. Uh, the papers I've written that are really serious uh, theoretical papers uh, view the, the mind, uh, the brain, and uh, and thus experience consciousness as self-organizing, as autopoetic, yes. and it comes uh, especially influenced by uh, Varela. Yes. And notion, Varela and Maturama, but Varela is the one. Uh, yeah. He's he's the person. He he converted to Buddhism after his discovery because he, he had like a spirit. As far as I understand, he had some spiritual revelations, which were like the result of of this understanding of how how that all works. Right. Yeah. He uh, he really became a Buddhist and uh, began to see the world and write from that perspective. Uh, it's too bad that we lost him a few years ago because he, he was such a creative person. Yes. But yeah, he, he became a Buddhist. Uh, it seems like that's a risk for everyone that goes into spirituality. They end up as Buddhists or they end up as something. Yes, I mean, it's a little bit fringe, you know, but, but the idea 
um, when, when we bring this together, the, the idea of self-organizing and autopoiesis right. on, on one side and the idea life after life, what happens when the psyche and the consciousness, I mean, is, is that something we, we can bring together? Is psyche or, or consciousness something which might at some point be going, uh, going on after the death of the body, for example. Right. So be, even right. because it is autopoetic, you know, it's like, do, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I have no authority about that. Uh, <laughs> I do have some thoughts. I think uh, that you have to pretty much do what Urban Laszlo's done and a number of others, and that is think about consciousness in the mind as more than the brain and that's been a real emphasis of Irvin and others now uh, unfortunately it doesn't seem like uh, Maturama and, and especially Varela ever took that position their writing has always been very um, shall we say physicalistic it's always been about the brain yes uh, but I don't see that that's necessary uh, I know some and have known some great Buddhist scholars uh, who completely disagree with Majorama and feel that he's totally misinterpreted uh, some of the old uh, Buddhist texts, as a matter of fact, and uh, we're not happy with his uh, book. Uh, there were three authors to the book, but he was probably the principal one <clears throat> uh, on the brain that was published in the, the 90s. I never go back and check the title, but it's the book. From um, Maturana, you cognition something, um, or oh, this, yeah. Well, no, this is from from uh, Varela. Ah, uh, and then there's a lady from Berkeley who's a philosopher who was involved, and it seems like maybe there was a third one. Um, but anyway, this friend of mine who's now gone too. Uh, Herbert Gunther, who's considered by many to be the greatest Buddhist translator and scholar of his time, uh, was very unhappy with that book because it had this strong uh, physicalistic orientation about the brain. And he just said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, there's nothing physicalistic about Buddhism. What planet did this person come from? He, he's a very cynical guy. He's a really <laughs> but he was a great scholar. Everybody that knows Buddhism Okay, there's nobody better than him. Uh, so there's an issue about how much of it's brain and how much is not. But aside from that, many great philosophers, scholars, and people today uh, do not believe that consciousness is just the brain <clears throat> or that the mind is just the brain. And uh, if you can get... Uh, get away from that idea, then whatever the mind is can, can continue on uh, in a non-physical form. And ideas about self-organization and autopoiesis certainly have their, their place in whatever the psychology of non-physical <laughs> existence uh, turns out to be. We do have these detailed reports of uh, life after life, that is, near-death experiences, in which yes. the brain is just shut off. I mean, some of these, there's just no activity at all, even in the brain stem, for periods of time. And uh, they're a little like dream states, but clearly people are thinking, reasoning, uh, processing information. It's all going on. Yes. So uh, 
I'm more inclined to feel like uh, the brain is uh, has to correspond to experience in the mind but and maybe it's even in some sense a projection of experience in the mind but certainly there's more to the picture than the brain itself yes so anyway uh, drifting off a little bit but uh, this all has to do with consciousness and where consciousness goes and what it is uh, during our life and and afterwards yes or That's even Lifetimes. Yes, I mean this is like a, a very interesting question because um, the, the word consciousness implies that that in a way it, it's a thing with boundaries, but it, it doesn't seem yeah. to it doesn't seem to be the way it does. As far as I I understand your position, and if I observe my own experience, it seems to be more like a consciousness experience or experience of what I'm doing. It seems more to be a process. Than to be like a fixed stru structure. So, yes, so, so exactly. What, what do you think? What what is consciousness? What how? So well, I agree with you. You know, William James, a great uh, consciousness scholar uh, in the U.S., who in 1890 published this book called uh, uh, "The Principles of Psychology," which I still consider the greatest book ever written about consciousness, even though it's been over a hundred years. Uh, he actually wrote an essay in French a little later in which he really rejects the word consciousness. He says, we got to get rid of it because people think they're talking about something. Uh, and yes. he shifted entirely to writing in his later life about experience. So he wrote about experience. Of course, if you're not careful, you end up saying the same thing about experience you would say about consciousness. But uh, I, I agree with you. There's no thing, nothing, that corresponds to a noun consciousness. I think of uh, experience as a kind of open space or openness uh, that allows room for processes and objects and so on. Uh, of experience, but it's not a thing, and you, and you can't find it anywhere. Yes. So you can't find it in the brain because it's not in there. Um, so this is one of the paradoxes about consciousness. It's a kind of emptiness in which experience occurs, and those experiences uh, are often processes. In fact, in, technically speaking, I think they're always processes or things going on. Uh, in this emptiness, as you, as you might call it. Uh, and there are objects of experience. You see things, hear things, and so on, although yes. they, you can probably analyze those as processes. But consciousness, not a noun. It's not even a good verb in a way, because a verb implies it's about something that's happening. Although from my point of view, I guess I'm very Buddhist in this myself, um, consciousness is there's nothing happening in consciousness <laughs> it's an open space where processes somehow occur or are seen or experienced uh, in, in that sense there's yes. some parallels in quantum physics like this you know although I I'm not one to reduce consciousness to, to physics but you know the void there's the creative void Uh, which turns out to be full of energy and produces all sorts of things, but if you look straight at it, it's just a void, it's just empty. 
And I kind of view consciousness as like that. Uh, I, I agree with Ken Wilber that in some sense consciousness is always a perspective. You're always looking at the world from somewhere. Uh, there's yes. first-person perspective in which you're thinking or feeling about yourself. Uh, there's second-person perspective in which you are tuned into a relationship. Yes. Like you and I talking right now, that's a second-person process, and that's what I'm focusing on. Uh, and then there's third person, which is what objective science is all about, seeing uh, objects or processes outside yourself in the world. So according to Wilbur, uh, anything that you can say about consciousness is really, you're saying it about a perspective. And so it's all about perspectives, but Wilbur is a Buddhist, <laughs> of course, <laughs> pushing back far enough. He's talking about emptiness. Uh you know, right, right down at the core of things. So, but, but may I, may I, may I ask? Isn't perspective itself like um, doesn't apply the problem of the word as a thing? Doesn't it apply to the perspective? Because, like, a perspective is something we do um, and we inhabit, maybe, but it's not a thing. It's like, I mean, this is like no. a nominalization of a process. What you're doing. In a way, and and you you produce a perspective. It's not it's not a fixed thing. It's not you you don't find a perspective when you're looking in, into the psyche or the consciousness. It's you can describe what you're doing when you have a first person perspective, right? Or, or what you're doing, and so on and so on and so on. So the it's the same problem. So it's that we're conceptualizing these these things as things, these processes as things distorts our perception of how we how we deal with this you know what i mean i do but i think there uh and i think it's productive to think of perspectives uh in a more a less object-oriented way for example you're probably familiar with martin buber the great German philosophy that went to Israel, of course, but everything he wrote about is about, he's famous for the notion of I and thou. Yes. The relationship of you and others, or you and the divine, or whatever it is. Uh, <clears throat> well, that's a perspective. I mean, that's a way, or a position, quote-unquote, um, allegorical position, uh, from which you can perceive the world receive other people you're in a relationship with another person yes. and then he made the distinction which got to be quite popular a number of years ago of what's an authentic relationship and one that's not well it's authentic if we're in a true dialogic dialogue relationship really listening and, and involved with each other and it's a, it's not a true it's not an authentic relationship If you're buying something at the uh, supermarket <clears throat> and you're just talking to the person there that's uh, you're paying your bill or something. Uh, so you're in a relationship with that person, but he wouldn't call it authentic. He wouldn't say it's phony. It just doesn't amount to anything. It's an object relationship, as a matter of fact. So I think that's kind of what Ken Wilber would say, that whatever you experience, you experience from somewhere. And the criticism of traditional science. In fact, there's an article, uh, or maybe it's a book, by the title of The View from Nowhere. Uh, uh -huh. and, and the author, uh, 
is trying to make the point that if you, you claim you see the world objectively and not from a particular perspective, uh, you're wrong. <laughs> There's no, plus, no such thing as the view from nowhere. And so yes. mm-hmm. this is what objective science, and still today often, uh, tries to fool itself into doing. Oh, I'm looking at the objective world. I don't have a perspective. It's reality. But, I mean, even the founders of quantum theory were very clear that consciousness is so intimately involved in observation of the physical world, it directly affects subatomic particles, measurements, and everything else. But that's a matter of perspective, in a sense. Yes. So, I'm not a big enthusiast of perspective. I'm just pointing out that Wilbur makes a big deal of this. If you talk to him about consciousness, he immediately shifts to talking about perspectives. Uh, I like the idea of openness. I also like a very simple definition that's been handy in philosophy for a long time. To say consciousness is, quote unquote, what it is like. What it is like. What it's like to be sitting here dialoguing with me right now. What it's like to eat an apple. What it's like to sit in your chair. I mean, it's just that if you're conscious, it's like something to be conscious. It's the simplest idea in the world. And, you know, there's a famous article uh, in English uh, called What It's Like to Be a Bat. Uh, The famous one from Pete uh, Nagel. What what is the name? uh, Uh, You're close. Yeah. (laughs) It'll come to me in a minute. But, of course, there are two kinds of bats. There are ones that fly around. And presumably it's like something to be a brown bat or whatever it is. Uh, but, you know, in the U.S. we have baseball, and we use bats, and a lot of games use bats. And what's it like to be a bat, one of those bats? Well, probably isn't like anything. So that's his point, uh, that it's like something to be a living bat, and, and that's the essence of what he would call subjectivity. And his criticism of a lot of scientists uh, today, more so a few years ago, actually, is they want to talk about consciousness, but they don't want to talk about subjectivity. They don't want to talk about what it's like, and, and he, he says this makes no sense. Yes. If you're going to talk about consciousness, you've got to talk about subjectivity. You have to include, so that's what it is. It's subjective. Sure. Uh, yeah, so that's another one I often, when people just ask me, what do you, how do you define consciousness? My typical answer is what it's like. Hmm. Right now, right here, experiencing this moment, what what it's like. That's mm. that's consciousness. Yeah. I, I, I always ask myself. I wonder, you know, in, in those states of meditation, for example, when you try to calm your mind and get sure. rid of get rid of all the the memories, at least for for a couple of minutes or hours or for how long ever. So and but something remains, some quality, you know, some. Maybe some pure consciousness, some, you know. Yeah, you well, can, that's, that's you a can, good point. You can feel, yeah, it's, it's like you can nearly feel it, but you can't. You know, it's like it has a taste or it is a, um, some form of quality which is not graspable. It's like, you know, it's like I'm always wondering no, how because, to... That's because you shut your mind off at that point. Mm. <laughs> no, I agree with you. It's like something to be in deep meditation, what... The Indians would call samadhi. Mm. And uh, your mind, I 
I'm an old-time meditator, and I spend some time in samadhi every day, pretty much. It takes me about an hour to get there, actually. Yes. Uh, but everything quiets down, and uh, there's no no sensory information coming in, nothing, no thoughts, nothing. But you're you're completely conscious. It's a wonderfully restful, easy state, in fact, and you, you just like to sit in it. So it's like something. Uh, but it's not like thinking about anything or, or no, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, but it seems to have like a specific quality. It's not built uh, from from atoms or molecules, for example. But there's some seems to be a, a substance which is which is so fine and which is, is so s sublime in a way. Yeah, yeah, sublime um, is a great word. But but it's um, yeah, I, I I can't put my finger on it. It's it's. It's there, but it's, it's... No, you can't put your finger on it. My teacher, who was a great uh, yogi, uh, actually, said, when you're in samadhi, you have no questions. That's true. <laughs> it was cute. And when he would give a lecture, and he'd say questions, and nobody held up their hands, he would say, oh, you were all in samadhi. <laughs> <laughs> no questions. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, that samadhi, you might call that a state of consciousness. One of your... Uh, questions you sent me or issues we're talking about was uh, what what's a state of consciousness and uh, exactly yes we can talk about that a little bit uh, Ken Wilber talks about it I've written a lot about uh, states and structures and forms of consciousness uh, but a state of consciousness seems to be a kind of very broad experiential landscape, if you can call it, like being uh, awake right now, rational, active state, or dreaming is a state, and it's really different, uh, and you, you pretty much, uh, you can't put your finger on it, you pretty much know you're not dreaming. I've asked several audiences, does anybody here seriously think they might be dreaming? Almost nobody ever holds up their hand, you know. Uh, yes. We know we're not dreaming, but when you're dreaming, you often know you're dreaming, or you may know you're dreaming. Samadhi is a state of consciousness, very unusual one. You know, Indian philosophy has a whole range of these states. Uh, no, but but uh, let, let me just uh, say one thing. In, in your book, and this, this was, that was so fantastic, I was reading your book, and, mm -hmm. and you um, brought together the states And this concept from systems theory, the, um, the attractors, mm -hmm. you know, so, and you compared a state to the dynamic uh, ru ru right. relations of, of the attractors. And I found this so fascinating because, oh, thank of, you. Of, of course, of course yeah. it has to be like this, you know, like you, when, when you're in a specific state, you attract things which are similar in a way, you know, and it's like fantastic. That's right. And, and an attractor, uh, attractors have what we call basins. Yes. Uh, they're, they're grooves you slip into. So sleep's a good example. Once you start down the groove or start down the slope into the sleep attractor, you have a tendency to go right into it, um, which is a problem with driving, of course. If you start to slip off a little bit where you're driving, the big danger is that you'll get caught in the sleep attractor and you'll be gone. I mean, you'll be gone all the way into it, and exactly. uh, it's not a halfway business. It's very hard to be half awake, yes, uh, especially if you're tired. 
Uh, and then dreaming is a, a kind of attractor. Once people start to dream, they, they shift into this dream state. Uh, all of this has been well studied uh, in brain research as well. Of course, the dream state is a distinct kind of uh, neurological state of the brain uh, in which the outside world is pretty much shut off. You mean like alpha, beta, gamma, and theta waves? You're talking about this from a brain perspective, or what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. There's a distinct pattern to dreaming. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it involves uh, inhibition of the senses. You don't hear anything. Uh, you don't see anything. They're shut off. Uh, it's like being in an isolation tank. Yes. Uh, and, and then the dream can go on undisturbed. Um, and, and, and then uh, non-dream sleep is a little different. It's a different brain state. Uh, but dreaming is very interesting because one thing that happens is the prefrontal lobe, where a lot of rational thought seems to be organized, is pretty much offline. So crazy things happen in dreams. You step through the door of the, your kitchen and you're at a swimming pool in southern Florida and there's the dog that you used to have 20 years ago and so on. Well, you don't question it. You say, wait a minute, this is crazy stuff. You know, you don't, <laughs> don't do that because your frontal lobe's offline. Your critical faculty's offline. Uh, so that's a dream state, and it's, uh, it's got a neurological basis. And then there are various kinds of non-dream sleep. No, but, but the thing uh, is, it's really, it's really hard to get into the basin um, of, of sleep, you know, like I'm, I'm talking about lucid dreaming, for example, and you really, really yeah. have to train and to find a method to, to bring some form of consciousness into that attractor. You know, it's like, I, I yes. don't know if, if the attractor itself is changing or, or if you just bring, bring an, an element to it. I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting that a lot of young people, including myself, have lucid dreams uh, and then lose the ability. I used to have lucid dreams all the time when I was a teenager. And I started waking myself up just for fun. And after a while, I just would wake up and I lost the ability. Uh. But, you know, there's a whole version of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, Dzogchen Buddhism, that's a dream dream practice and it involves lucid dreaming and control lucid dreaming yeah it's called it's uh it's zogchen buddhist dream practice i don't know what else to say you can find it on the web yes uh, i have an acquaintance who's a zen uh zogchen master actually and we got in this conversation about lucid dreaming uh because the way they do it, you have control. Now, I don't. I mean, but he can. And so they have, you have control of the lucid dream. Of course, you can train yourself to do this. There are books about it and everything else. But yes. this, is, this is a little different. These Zogchen people. I said, well, can you go from there into the netherworld, as it were? Can you meet people that have passed on? And are living in, you know, in Bardo's stage or whatever. I mean, yes. I was talking to a Buddhist, uh, Tolku, so this is not weird talk for him. He said, oh, yes. He said, I had a long conversation not long ago with a, uh, a friend who had died, and he was looking for another birth. 
having a little trouble finding it, and we talked about it. Eventually, he found a berth over on the other side of Tibet and uh, got himself born, so he's back now. Wow. So uh, this was all done during you know, this conversation as lucid dreaming is the entree uh, to get into the whatever Bardo states or you know, in-between states. But uh, the Dzogchen people have developed uh, lucid dreaming as a whole yogic practice. And uh, there's also a, an Indian yogic practice of lucid dreaming that's not emphasized as much. Anyway, I didn't mean to get off on that, but it's interesting uh, if you think about states of consciousness. Because <clears throat> lucid dreaming is a dream state, but it's different than most dream states. I, my guess is the frontal lobe is very active, and uh, I don't know what else. <laughs> no, but it's interesting. I, I I tried it a couple of times, and and I got to the point where I can uh, create and and navigate my dreams, but. I, I certainly did not go and visit some <laughs> friends in the Bardo, but, but as I said, the, the whole conception of, okay, the, there's a, a tractor and, and it's moving and, and yes. this, this is, because it's not, only, it's not only dreaming, it's like another, I mean, we're constantly in some state of consciousness right. and, and, and we have to, I, I think this is the ethical question, which kind of states do we want to um, make stronger in a way? Yeah. Which states do yeah. we want to weaken a little bit because it's oh, a bad habit, point. or I don't know? I mean, with our European background, we really value the rational waking state a lot. But yes. there, you know, dream state, especially if you're interested in lucid dreaming, can be very productive. Um, here in the West, especially in California, where I live... <laughs> We're discovering a lot of uh, drug-induced states. Yes. Ayahuasca is very fashionable here now. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, people go to South America or somewhere and take ayahuasca, and they have really, really strange experiences. Uh, yeah, the same with DMT. Oh, DMT, yeah. It's just coming online now. They, they say it's even better and makes you happy. I, I it doesn't, no, it doesn't make you happy. It doesn't. Oh, doesn't it? Oh, no, people say it's wonderful. Have I you know, tried it's a, it? It's a, yeah, yeah, I tried it. It's a strange... Did it make you happy? No, it ga gave me to think for a year. And, and oh, because... Be, told me that everything is like Christmas when you take... No, no, it's, it's, it's <laughs> supposedly it's, it's um, the same experience as if you die because um, it's, like, it's the same chemical... Um, which which the brain is is um, exerting if if you die so and so when when you take this drug and it t takes only ten minutes you you yeah. go through this dying sensation your body shuts down in a way and you lie down and you everything gets black and you go through the tunnel and and with the light and everything and it's like you are basically what happened then huh I mean all these drugs start with intense nausea <laughs> yes. You have to get through that to do any but, of them. But if you take LSD, for example, you're still in this time and space continuum. You still know you are here in a way. But but that's, that's true. But but if you take DMT, it's like you're you're really in another place, and there are like beings, and some people describe oh, yeah. these beings like angels or like like machine aliens or something. Yeah, but, yeah. But the the weird thing is that that there's a professor. 
in Harvard, I guess, who, who had this study of DMT and he gave 500 people um, that drug and they all had the same experience, but it was a like a blind experiment. They didn't know and they couldn't um, talk about their experience and, and it was not an hallucination. So they, yeah, they yeah. all had the experience of meeting somebody there on the other side. It's really strange, you know, when you read that. You're not talking about Terence Deacon, are you, or his brother? He was—he died a few years ago, but he was famous for his work with—I uh, don't know if it was DMT, but it was just this, exactly this kind of thing. Yes. He wrote a book with Sheldrick, uh, Rupert Sheldrick, called *The Physics of Angels*. Oh, interesting. No, it wasn't him. It was uh, he may have been involved with it though. I know they were good friends. Uh, I think there was another co-author on that book. But the Physics of Angels is a really interesting book, but not so much about consciousness. Mm. Um, no, but it's like it's like a good example for how you can like in, um, create those states with really strong drugs and you, you, you go to another place and your whole perspective and your, oh, oh yeah well they say DMT is sort of the root drug for ayahuasca is there any exactly truth? yes yes well you need a guide <laughs> that's true <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> there's a book by uh, called The Way of the Shaman by Michael Hanna uh, yes Yes, and he has a story in that about his first experience with this uh, Amazonian drug, but way back when he was working on his dissertation, and there was he was worked with this Amazonian tribe, and before he came back to the U.S., they finally let him have this very powerful potion, as they call it, because it's a mixture of stuff. Yes, and of course he got deathly sick for a while, but that was okay. That's part of it. And then these, you may remember this, these uh, people, these creatures came down from the sky in what looked like big Viking ships. <laughs> and yeah, and they came down, you could see them perfectly clearly. And and then they got out and they came down to earth and they talked to him. They were sort of reptilian somehow. Yes. And they introduced themselves as the uh, lords of the universe. You remember this? And yeah, and so he... He was so wowed by this. He said, I got to write this down, the Lords of the Cosmos. So he's getting ready to go back to the U.S., and he's up the river having dinner with these missionaries, telling them this. And they said, oh, my God, this is straight out of the book of Revelations. Wow. They opened the book of Revelations, and here's this whole business about these creatures coming down and so on. And he said, well, I really, uh, I really have to. Hold on a minute. Um, so where was I? So. He's going to get back, and he's going to tell everybody about this. And the day before he left, he finally got access to the old shaman, who had never really gotten to talk to, this old character. So he goes in, he starts telling this old shaman this story. And the more he talked, the more this old shaman began to smile, and he began to laugh. And when he got to the part where he said they're the lords of the universe, he just laughed and laughed. He said, oh, they always say that, but they're only the lords of outer darkness. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a drug experience. I just thought that was so so funny. Oh, yes. they're, they're only the lords of outer darkness. Um, anyway, where are we? So these are all states, though. Yes. Uh, and they have certain properties, whether they're ayahuasca-induced, marijuana-induced. In fact, 
Charlie Tart wrote a wonderful book way back in the 70s called Being Stoned, in which he used systems theory. There wasn't autopoietic in those days. System theory in those days was about boxes and arrows. Okay. But he wrote a whole book, a wonderful book, about being stoned on marijuana and what that's, how it affects memory, how it affects humor, body sense, and so on. In fact, it's a, it's a great model for yes. you know, finding different states because each one has these different properties. Sense yes. of the body, uh, what reasoning is like, and so on. Humor, uh, creativity, whether, you, you know, and marijuana makes sound open up. People sit and listen to music. They get hungry. But visually, it doesn't do much. Yes. But if you do LSD, you get very involved in the visual world. Yes. So back when I was in school, in the 60s, we would smoke marijuana, eat cookies, and listen to jazz, and, and never get out of our chairs, because <laughs> it just makes you want to sit, sit and, and eat all day. Uh, so, but, but I thought that was very important work, and I was very influenced by it, because what Charles Tart did with his book, Being Stoned, and, uh, and other books of that period, uh, I think he has a book called Something Like States of Consciousness. I have to go back and check, but uh, he, he, he has a, one of his early books talks about this. He defines a state as a collection of traits or processes, such yeah. as perception uh, through the very senses, reasoning, humor, body sense, and so on, uh, that form a kind of uh, cluster that, well, I talk about it in my book. I pretty much talk about it the same way, that these come together in a particular way. Uh, you can't just put them together any old way. You can't take uh, the, the memory, uh, thought processes, body sense, and so on, and just shuffle them together yes. like cards. They fit and create a structure uh, which becomes an attractor. Yes. And uh, then you begin to, to go into that basin. Uh, one of the things I talked about a little bit in my book, The Radiance of Being, is how once you begin to move into a state, then in some sense you slide right into it, you slide into the attractor. So people will drink a lot of alcohol, for example, but something will trigger them at the party and suddenly they're high, they're yep. stoned, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Uh, but if something else happens, like their mother calls... <laughs> Our mother-in-law, suddenly they're not <laughs> high anymore. But, it's a, but, but um, this is a different state because I, I think um, this, this, um, this I learned from Graham Hancock. I don't know if you know him. And, and he had like he a... He did all that wonderful work on ancient civilizations. Oh, uh, yes, it true? Yeah, I love his stuff. Yes, and he talked about, well, some um, about drugs and, and that our predominant state... Uh, of mind in, in the European and American hemisphere is the con concrete operational state of mind. The problem. Well, that, yeah, that's what I was saying. The yeah. rational. Yeah, the problem-solving state of mind, but it's it's still a state. You know, it's not. Oh, yes. Okay. And and sure. this I found really interesting because okay, um, those states are not those special states only like dreaming or drugs or um, sexual experiences, but. But our normal way of being is also a state, you know, and, and I found this very interesting, you know, when, when you have this view on how you shift between the states, how you shift right. between 
concrete operational to, to dreaming to whatnot. And, you know, it's like, I find this quite interesting that our society has like this, favors the, the problem-solving state, basically. Yes, definitely. And it works the other way, too, as Charles Tark pointed out, and I do, too, in some of my writing. As long as you stay in the problem-solving state, uh, you tend not to drift into the other. So it keeps you grounded. Yes. You know, work on your income tax or, you know, do paper, whatever you do, you won't have visionary experiences and you, you you know you won't drift off into these creative uh states that uh, or other realities so it, it keeps people under control in a sense <laughs> yes just keep them busy working you know mm. now i i have now an, an idea and maybe you have some some so thoughts about this you know um do, do you know this model about this five character traits like person personality wise agreeableness openness extroversion neuroticism and empathy so yeah. so so and i wonder how much of those um traits is relatable to specific states of mind you know when you're okay you are like very high in extraversion you have certainly yeah. a different perspective and certainly a different way of being right to say it in this way uh, as a person who is high on introvert introversion and high on neuroticism or conscientiousness or something like this. Right. So, so is there any data on this? Is there any research about this? Do you know something about this? I know relatively little, actually. I'm not really familiar with this system. Uh, there are a number of systems like this out there, and some of them have been researched quite a bit. Uh, the probably differences between Europe and the U.S. Ken Wilber, of course, has what he calls the cosmic address. Yes, so it's a developmental stage, consciousness structure, personality type. I think there are six features that you yes. can find very quickly that define the cosmic address. And the cosmic address essentially defines the person. Uh, so it's very similar to what you're talking about. I don't doubt that if any particular constellation of these traits defines a particular kind of person, no, that's uh, sure. whether different ones really are, sta state is a pretty big one, mm. and that's a big item, whether you're awake or asleep, whether you're drug intoxicated or whatever you want to call it or not, whether you're having a you know, near-death experience, these are big overriding items. And then uh, the other aspects of consciousness are kind of go inside of those somehow. Yes while you're in a particular state, then you may have a particular kind of personality trait. Or memory, for example. That's one of the things that Charlie Tart talked about. Uh, when you're stoned, you don't have good short-term memory. Uh, but you have good long-term memory. So you mm. still know who you are. Well, when I was uh, in school, we would just keep smoking until we couldn't complete a sentence. <laughs> That was our major because, it, you know, you couldn't remember what you were supposed to talk about yes. anymore. Uh, and so we thought that was a lot of fun. I had some students do uh, uh, embedded figures, uh, uh, research on embedded figures. These are, you know, like we see a drawing and there's a, a someone or some figure in there somewhere if you can find it. And different levels of smoking marijuana. And with a little marijuana, people got better at it. Yeah, with more marijuana, they couldn't remember what they were supposed to do. 
Uh, so memory is uh, a good example of a, of a trait or a function that's different in different states. Yes. Normal waking consciousness, uh, your memory is, works pretty well. Mm. Although in theory it could work better, you know, they hypnotize people in order to help them remember things they can't remember when they're awake. So the hypnotic state seems to access memories. And so does uh, deep relaxation, in my experience. That you yes. can, things will come to you when you're deeply relaxed, like when you're before you meditate or something, and you'll remember things. And oh, yeah, there it is. There's yeah, but I just, I, and I, it was so mind boggling. I, I just today saw a video about a guy, and it was in 60 minutes, I guess. And he had an accident. He, he went, he jumped into the pool and hit his head and was three days into some kind of deep state, coma-like, I don't know. Yeah, and he sure. came out and, and he had like a piano in his um, house and he just started to play like a genius. And, and, but he, he couldn't play before. It was, I think it was the piano yeah. of his daughter or something. So, but yeah. suddenly he... and, and Uh, also, he suffered from severe migraines after that accident. But between those migraines and between those episodes, he was a he is a fantastic piano player. And I mean, how how is that po even possible? You know that that you can suddenly create that that state in a way where you are able to play piano perfectly. You know, it's like it's mind boggling. Very strange, isn't it? I, I have no idea. Uh, Oliver Sacks has a lot of stories like this, especially in his first book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And one of them, a little different than what you're talking about, but it reminds me of it, is a, a man who had took, I've forgotten what drug it is. There's a drug that sometimes is abused and will make people incredibly violent. <clears throat> and he had murdered his daughter or something on this drug. Uh, very violently and and then later could couldn't remember anything but this was such a violent murder when it went to court it was a closed session that the jury would see pictures they weren't available to the public because it was just awful uh, he could remember nothing uh, and then a few years later he was in a car accident or motorcycle and had a severe blow to the head suddenly it all came back oh no Yes, and not only all came back, but he couldn't quit thinking about it. So the rest of his life, as far as I know, has been pretty miserable, haunted by these terrible memories. Uh, but what's that all about? First, he couldn't remember. Then he gets a knock on the head, and he can remember. I don't know. That's a mystery. What? That is that is <laughs> that is a mystery. But this is one of those questions I, I wanted to ask you, like. You, you, you devoted your life in, in the research of, of consciousness in a way and, and you explored the many strands and the many things. What is, what is the most important insight for you or the revelation about or insight into, the, into consciousness? What is the yeah. most fundamental thing you learned about consciousness? Well, I'll kind of answer that question and then add a little. I think we've already talked about what I consider the most fundamental insights. That is, consciousness is emptiness, uh, consciousness is perspective, is what it's like. Those are all my deepest 
feelings. Uh, but I, I can segue a little bit here uh, because you mentioned the recent conference at Yale that I organized. Yes. Uh, and we've talked about the fact that I'm kind of a generalist, uh, fairly rare in my trade. Uh, I do want to say this, and this is a little off what we've been talking about, but consciousness and awareness of consciousness and research on on or tangential to consciousness is going on everywhere, all over the place. And this is very new. I mean, within the last 10 years, uh, we have a consciousness uh, group at the Society uh, for Anthropology. Uh, neuroscientists all over the place are interested in consciousness in the brain. Uh, there are more books uh, about that than you could put on a bookshelf. Uh, Physicists and people interested in physics are intensely interested in consciousness and what it's got to do with subatomic events because the collapse of the wave function evidently requires an observation. So there's all these arguments about what is an observation, what's the role of consciousness, and of course some of the fundamental uh, founders, I should say, of uh, quantum physics back in the early 20th century considered consciousness to be absolutely basic for the way that the universe is put together. Um, and consciousness, of course, I'm a psychologist, so I guess the point I want to make is that uh, people in just about every uh, scientific and scholarly profession are now getting interested in consciousness. In fact, <clears throat> I'm working on a book with a colleague now about consciousness in literature. We're looking at Virginia Woolf, uh, who's considered one of the greatest uh, English writers ever. Yes. Emily Dickinson, American writer. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a huge influence in the U.S., uh, and contemporary literature. In fact, her whole approach is what she calls mythopoiesis. Uh, and that is literature as myth-making, but the poesis is in there from Varela. Interesting. And, okay. Yeah, so uh, organizing, uh, self-organizing uh, perspective in terms of literature and myth-making. Uh, I have a doctoral student who's writing about uh, The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, so there are these. How, what do you mean that that myths are recreating themselves via literature and via reception, or what do you mean? Yeah, uh, what I mean is that the myths that come out of poetry and literature uh, have some self-creating features, so that. They're not directly from Vrel and Maturama, but the idea of self-organizing, or at least uh, autopoietic, as they call it, uh, underlying themes is, is now, they're looking at these in terms of literature. What's going on in the literature? Uh, what's going on in the poetry of uh, Emily Dickinson, for example, that shows a kind of 
autopoietic or self-organized. You know, it's hard to convert this really to systems theory in a literal sense. Yep. And I'm not the literature major. I've been called in as a, <laughs> as a co-author and colleague. But these people are interested in what they call methodologies. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the, this this um, eternal return, this concept from from Nietzsche. You know that. that oh uh, yeah. Oh, how would you? Uh, what are you thinking of there? No, I, I mean, I mean that like the general idea that 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 the basic structures of our consciousness are replicating themselves, oh, and, right. and and that the basic myths are, are recreating itself. I mean, like. Jesus, in a way, as a as a new as a return of the Osiris myth, and Jesus yes. itself as as the meta hero of our Western society. This is when when you look right. today a, a a movie or or read a book and there's a hero in it. It's like an iteration. Of no, these the, are all you know, like eternal themes or exactly. So, yeah, it's very good. Yeah, well, uh, that's kind of what they're doing. Mm. I think. And uh, they're seeing these as sort of attractors. Uh, so I think they go that far into the influence of uh, Varel and Maturama to see these myths or these mythic themes as uh, self-creating and self-propagating. Although yeah. I'm not the literature person, so I'm just getting involved in it right now. Yeah. But when I organized the conference at Yale uh, just a couple of weeks ago, Uh, we had several papers that uh, presented themselves as mythopoetic, yeah, uh, and especially interested in poetry. Yeah. Uh, so I'm that sounds still... very interesting. It's, it's, do you know that concept uh, from Richard Richard Dawkins and Susan Blackmore? That meme concept. It's not the spirodynamics thing, but the the thing of a cultural unity. Yeah, um, which re replicates itself. So no, I think the idea of the meme is is brilliant. It's a very yeah. good idea. I don't agree with them about anything else, but <laughs> uh, well, I'll qualify that. But I'm not a Dawkins fan, that's for sure. But the idea of the meme is is yeah, very nice. Yeah. sort of cultural uh, DNA in a sense. Yeah, which is self-replicating self in, in a way. And what you say about mythopoiesis, when, when I, for example, take this quadrant model of Ken Wilber, that right. would uh, be inside the upper, the, the, un, uh, the, um, uh, the what do you, how do you call it in English? The, lo the lower left quadrant. So, mm. so Yeah, and, that's right. That's, so, that's so, so and, and like this meme, this cultural meme, you would put, put it in there also. So, and... and I find I find this whole idea that you can use that orthopoetic concept of of systems theory. You can apply it to every quadrant. You know, I I, I like to think that way. You can. Yeah, you know, Wilbur puts is it Lehman that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, puts him in the lower right quadrant. Yes, exactly. I'm no expert on him. He's a little too dense for me. But then, if I could read German, it's like Jean Kepser. They say it's exquisitely clear writing in German, but yeah, I can't a, German. Yeah, yeah, he's, he was a bureaucrat, and therefore the, the, the dense language. He was a, so before he was oh, but, a sociologist. You know, he, was a, he was a nationally recognized poet in his early life. Ah, is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. And, and he, yeah, I think he wrote very clearly in some sense. Bureaucrat, huh? I never heard that. Interesting. <laughs> 
<laughs> there's uh, some some lawyer or bureaucrat. He was some before he was a sociologist. So, so there, therefore the the orderliness. Well, now wait a minute. You're talking about Lehman. I'm talking about Jean Gabs. Ah, no, no, no. I was yeah. Okay, mm, I, I was talking about Lehman. Yes. Mm. Yeah, Lehman. He's like Habermas. You know, I should be able to read him, but I can't. <laughs> Of course, I guess he's proud of his own obscurity. I don't know. <laughs> and I was at a conference in Germany a few years ago and had a simultaneous translator. Oh, yeah? One of the German scholars was just going away, and this translator said, I don't know what he's talking about. He's speaking in high German. I can't translate. Well, uh, I said, okay. <laughs> so I haven't really gotten very deep into Habermas either, but Wilbur really admires him and talks about him all the time. Yes. And Lima. Yes. So. Yeah, no, Wilbur, the, the, Wilbur has like this, this unique ability to, to um, write in such a clear way and, and transmit his yeah. ideas. And, and you, you have to be like a really good writer. Like in, German, in Germany, we have Sloterdijk. And he is also like, when, when I re read his, his stuff, it's so clear and it's so wonderful. And Habermas and, and Luhmann, it's, it's horrible to read, but it's, it's very good, but it's horrible to read, you know, it's like... You know, they say Ken Wilber copied by hand a whole book by Alan Watts to emulate his style, because yes. Watts was just eminently readable, you know, yes. clear. Yes. Well, you know what, I'm going to have to go before long. I'm still, you, know, tell me, you can probably tell my voice is still not quite right, but I, I've been good and I really enjoyed our conversation. Mm. You put so much good energy into it that uh, <laughs> raised my Shakti a little bit. The what? My Shakti. Oh, yeah, 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 that's good. That's yeah. good. <laughs> All right, okay. well, my friend, we'll talk more. So I hope so. Thank you very much. I wish you a very good Sunday and, and I, keep, I keep in touch, right? You bet. Very good.